0: Hello and welcome to the Charity CEO Podcast, the podcast for charity leaders by charity leaders, with candid, meaningful conversations that really get beneath the surface of issues. This show aims to inspire, inform, and deliver practical insights on the challenges facing charity leaders today, for the benefit of leaders across the sector, and for those who care about the important work of charities. I'm your host, Vivia O'Connor, and each episode I will be interviewing a charity chief executive who will share with us their insights, knowledge, and expert opinion on a particular topic or area of expertise. My guest today is the amazing Charlotte Hill, founding CEO of Step Up to Serve. In part one of our conversation, Charlotte and I talk about her current role on secondment as Executive Director for Children and Young People with the BBC's Children in Need, where she is coordinating the COVID-19 funding response and developing a longer-term strategy for collaboration in the children and young people funding space. Charlotte reflects on her journey with Step Up to Serve, its achievements, and the intricacies of running a time-limited collective impact project. We discuss the impact of the current crisis on young people and how we must engage young people in helping to think through what the new normal should be in order to build back a stronger civil society. I hope you enjoyed the show. Hi, Charlotte. Welcome to the show. so lovely to see you.
1: And it's lovely to see you too. Thank you very much for having me.
0: So our regular listeners will know that we normally start off the show with an icebreaker round, and this is just about 60 seconds of some lighthearted personal questions to enable our listeners to get to know you a little bit and for us to have a little bit of fun. So... If you're ready, Charlotte. I'm I'll... ready. I'm intrigued by what you're going to ask. Ooh, excellent. I'll just set our 60 second timer and we can kick off. What would you say is your professional superpower? Oh, um, endless enthusiasm. What is the superpower you wish you had?
1: Oh, um, lots more charm
0: i'm sure you don't need more charm palette you are extremely charming what was your first dance song at your wedding
1: oh god isn't it awful i've forgotten its name um elbow oh god i can't remember the name of the song da, 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 da. Oh, people will know what that yes, what that one that's is It's a
0: nice yeah. song i like that <laughs> i think we have time for one more question what's the naughtiest thing you did at school Oh god! That, I
1: mean, I was really naughty at school. Loads of naughty things. Um, I well, I'm going to say bunking off, just because it's the
0: <laughs> most. <laughs> That's what everybody thing. did. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. And I do have a bonus question that I like to ask all guests. So, okay, if you could interview anyone in the world, dead or alive, and you could ask them one question, who would it be, and what would you like to ask?
1: Anyone, dead or alive. Wow. Well, this is a very random person, but I would like to meet Dolly Parton, who is one of my all-time heroes and has done so many amazing things and just ask her like, what her inspiration was for... She's given away... I think it's over two billion books now with her fortune. She's given away to children all across the world. So I've always wanted to ask her about it. We get delivered a book every month for each of my kids. And she does this for kids all over the world. It's amazing.
0: Didn't know that.
1: Yeah, she's literally the most amazing woman who's given all her money away that she's made by trying to get people, kids to read. So I'd want to ask her about like what inspired her to do it and how she's, yeah, how she's gone about doing it.
0: Wow, that's lovely. Well, I should be ordering some Dolly Parton books for my own kids now that I've heard about this. It is
1: called The Imagination Library by Dolly Parton. It's absolutely brilliant, honestly.
0: Oh, wow. The Imagination Library. I love that.
1: Yeah, she is an amazing woman.
0: So, Charlotte, to now transition into our main discussion for today, you have been the long-standing and founding CEO of the charity Step Up to Serve, which we will come on to talk about later. But I'd like to start off by chatting about your current role. You recently returned from maternity leave and are on secondment with the BBC children need as their executive director for children and young people. And when we were preparing for this podcast and I asked you what this role entailed, I loved the description you gave, and I'm going to quote from your email here, you said that you were a. A floating resource working across founders and government. To pull together a COVID nineteen response for children and young people, whilst running a team of sixty people within Children Need to distribute their funding, and all done from your bedroom with a baby and a toddler underfoot. So, Charlotte, tell us how this role came about and what you're doing there.
1: I was in the very strange position of, as you say, being on maternity leave with my second baby when the lockdown hit, and have an absolutely brilliant woman, Dr. Rania Mirandos, uh, who was had become chief exec whilst I was on maternity leave and had also covered my maternity leave first time around. And she was doing an absolutely amazing job. So I was in a lucky position that I could speak to my board and say, look, a global pandemic has just hit. I'd really like to explore if there's another place I could be useful, if you're happy to release me. So um, I sort of called around a few different people that I knew and work around the kind of funding response to COVID-19 for children and young people was an area where there was clearly a need for some coordination and some work. And also Children in Need were doing a, the big night in, which was a big fundraiser. So it was really a kind of a, a conversation with Simon Antrobus, who's the brilliant chief exec at Children in Need, and some other funders that made me kind of just, yeah, go go across to Children in Need initially for three months. And actually, I'm going to stay there for six months to do a COVID-19 response piece of work, which has been fascinating. But yeah, full on. And particularly with so when I started a seven month old and a two year old. So yeah, pretty, pretty
0: full on. Yes, I can imagine that. So pulling together a COVID-19 response for children and young people sounds like a fascinating piece of work indeed. So can you tell us more about how this strategy is shaping up? and what work is being done.
1: In a nutshell, it's two things. One is pulling together a group of funders, including governments across the four nations and independent funders, to look at what is the vision for children and young people coming out of COVID-19. And then what's the strategy that sits beneath that in terms of funding? And then what are the ways that funders can collaborate and work together rather than individually to kind of drive and fund that strategy? So we've set up a whole series of subgroups where funders come together around areas of shared interest, and it's as much about kind of sharing insight and learning and planning together. And then it is also around sometimes around funding together. But what we've also been doing is consulting the sector collectively and also consulting children and young people collectively. So, I guess it's now being baked in as a much longer term thing than just a COVID response, but it's just looking at, actually, how can funders work collectively, given that there are so many really significant challenges facing children and young people as a result of COVID-19, no one funder is going to be able to solve them on their own. So, it's effectively trying to do a collective impact approach to funding, quite similar to the collective impact approach around I will and youth social action that we've been driving with the I will campaign, but it's specifically with funders. And it's also looking at how we don't over-consult the sector. So lots of funders were wanting to go out and ask probably very similar questions to very similar people. So it's also around how do we do that stuff collectively. And the hope is, is longer term, and long after I'll be gone from here, is this is now set up as a kind of a long-term, ongoing way that people will work together. And then the other part of the role that has been been actually then also about getting emergency COVID response funding out the door. So there's been the funding from the big night in, which... BBC Children in Need and Comic Relief did together, there's also been some funding from government, there's been funding with Youth Futures, so there's been a a range of different kind of pooled funds that's also been about getting that money out the door during the emergency period. So I guess they're slightly two different focuses, there's the focus on getting money out the door during the emergency period and then there's the focus on the longer term how do funders work collaboratively in the children young people funding space. So
0: Can you tell us a bit more what you think has been the impact of the pandemic on young people? We keep hearing on the news that young people are perhaps less susceptible to COVID-19. And I don't know if you can talk us through some of the common misconceptions around this and what are the big challenges for young people in the current context?
1: There's effectively three big things that have happened. One is is those young people who are already facing challenges, whatever those challenges were, whether it's poverty or, you know, not doing well at school or mental health challenges or whatever their challenges have got more significant in you know it's a bit like they've been under a microscope in COVID-19 there's then the second thing which is is that the group of young people facing challenges has got bigger because lots of other young people are now facing challenges as a result of COVID-19 and then the third bit is that those organisations set up to support young people are also in a crisis, they're in a funding crisis, they're having to furlough staff when there's massive demand and so on. So you've got a bit of a perfect storm, which is, it's worse for young people. And the people who are set up to support them, it's are also in crisis. So I think one of the things that's been incredibly hard for children and young people has been that on the face of it, they are less susceptible to getting the, you know, they're not in the most vulnerable group as the elderly. Yet they've had to make an absolutely huge amount of sacrifice during this pandemic. So for lots of them, you know, obviously they've had to step away from their education for for some months. It's had a big educational impact, particularly on those from the poorer backgrounds. So that's been incredibly challenging. Obviously, there's been a big digital divide between those who are in more affluent homes where they've got devices, they've got the internet, they've got data and all those things so they can access education versus those who might not have a computer, might not have a laptop, might not have data, might not have the internet, might not have space in their home to do work, might be in overcrowded accommodation, might not have parents who have got jobs you know, at the moment because of the the recession. So lots of young people have had all sorts of really significant challenges, lots of challenges for mental health. Some young people obviously struggling because of anxiety for all sorts of different reasons during the pandemic. Lots of young people really concerned about the loss of, you know, career progression and or transitions into college or university you know, the loss of potential jobs in the future. I mean, the list is endless. There's been absolutely huge impact on on children and young people in all sorts of ways. And I guess, you know, if the next few years are going to be tough for all of us. It's youth unemployment that usually bears the brunt in, in a lot of these kind of recessions. So I think it's going to be a really tough time for young people.
0: Yes, indeed, and I think that actually gives us a nice segue into talking about Step Up to Serve and your journey with that organization, which is very much focused on youth social action. So I know you were involved in setting up the charity back in 2013, and that since then the organization has really gone on to achieve some incredible things. You have over a thousand organizations engaged with the mission over 70 million pounds has been deployed for youth social action and 500 million pounds of government funding has been secured for youth services. So tell us the origin story of Step Up to Serve and what were you looking to do and achieve when you first set it up?
1: Well, first of all,
0: it has been the most amazing um, organisation to be
1: part of. I've been felt really fortunate. But I have to say, I stand on the shoulders of giants because a, two absolutely brilliant women, Dame Julia Cleverdon and Amanda Jordan, did a review for the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, which looked at what were the barriers that were stopping young people playing an active part in their communities. And I was then Chief Exec at UK Youth, and I was on their kind of advisory group as they were doing this review. And it was their review that led to the idea of the campaign. So... They were the two absolutely brilliant women who did all of the kind of groundwork, speaking to lots of different sectors, to the education sector, to the employment sector, to the um, the voluntary sector, to businesses, to faith communities, many others, that basically unearthed the whole series of challenges and then came up with this idea that it would be great to have a kind of time-limited campaign that tried to uh, address those challenges. So having been on the advisory group during that review, you know, I was then, after a very persuasive conversation with Julia Cleverden, who can persuade anyone to do anything, that was convinced to go and run it. So, yeah, set it up under the patronage of the Prince of Wales, who has been an amazingly supportive patron and and hugely brilliant, inspiring guy to work with, and really visionary around this stuff, has been for decades saying that young people you know, could be doing so much more in in society. So, yeah, that was where the kind of idea for it, for it all came. And so, yeah, came across and then, yeah, set up the organisation and the charity, created a board of trustees under the brilliant leadership of General Sir Nick Parker and, yeah, a, a brilliant team who have always been a really small team. We made a commitment from the beginning that we would only remain a small core lean team um, and we'd bring different people in on secondments and things as needed. But yeah, we we were committed to never becoming a delivery organisation. We wanted to make sure we remained small. It was all about how we enabled others to do more. And if we were doing the doing ourselves, there was something wrong because we won't exist after the end of 2020 because we're time limited. So it's always been about how do we... Basically, run a collective impact project so that others are engaged and persuaded to do more and really bake this in and embed it into their work. So, it has been a fascinating project doing something time limited and working in ways that I think are really different than if you're running a long standing organisation. My previous chief exec role was at UK Youth and I took over there when the organisation was 100 years old. So, You know, I'd I'd come from running a really well-established organisation and it's a very different thing running something, you know, you're going to close down. So, yeah, it's been it's been fascinating. And the most inspiring part of all of it has been the I Will Ambassadors, who are a collection of about 250 now, nearly 300 now young people aged between 10 and 20 who are doing amazing things in their communities all over the U.K., and that they are the absolute inspiration, you know, and, and the thing that makes going to work every day great fun. And actually the thing I've hugely miss now I'm on to Convent is the contact with the I Will Ambassadors all the time.
0: Yes, I know Dame Julia Cleverden and indeed Prince Charles from when I was working at the Princess Charities. So... Yes, I'm sure <laughs> she twisted your arm and there was no saying no, but what a brilliant opportunity and what an amazing set of people to to work with. Yeah, it's been amazing. And yeah, Julia can, can, you know, sell ice to Eskimos. Yeah, it's so <laughs> inspirational. I'm curious to understand a bit more about being a time limited organization. And I know mm-hmm. you said that Step Up to Serve is going to end this year uh, at the end of 2020 talk to us a bit more about what that has meant and how it was different as you sort of alluded to to your previous organisation. And also, do you feel that you have actually achieved everything that you set out to?
1: So I think there's something around when you set a a, a time limit and some goals by which you want to achieve things. It does mean you have to work at an incredibly different pace. So each year we decided, because we had a kind of a seven-year window we would um, after the kind of first couple of setup years of getting it established and building a strategy that we'd have a kind of a theme for each year to try and drive momentum and bring different sectors in and it means that effectively you've got a year to really engage a sector get you know get them built up into what they're doing start you know build the momentum around it so that they can continue and so there's something around the pace at which you work which is you know, fast, and I love because it just means you're constantly on the go. There's something around setting very clear goals that I think keeps people really motivated. Because you've set a clear set of goals by the end of 2020 about what you want to achieve, I think there's something really great about saying to people, look, here's your part in achieving this goal. And you might feel like your part is only, a, you know, but actually you're part of this big collective And I think that's the other thing that's quite powerful about it is people feel like they're part of something, a campaign, a movement, and that's a really powerful energizer for people and organizations to be part of. And I mean, there's all sorts of other other things. I I do think also it makes you remain really focused. I think you can probably have a bit of mission drift sometimes in other organizations, whereas when you've got a very clear set of goals and a very finite period of time in which to deliver them, you, you haven't got time to... Drift off. And actually, one of the things our board have been very good at is trying to keep us really focused on what we're trying to achieve. And to the part of your question around have we achieved everything we wanted to? Sadly, no. We set really ambitious goals at the beginning, knowing that some of them we wouldn't reach, but knowing that if we didn't set really ambitious goals, we wouldn't stretch ourselves as as much as we possibly could. So, a lot of the work that the team have been doing for the last couple of years has been all about. How do we make sure we've got very clear legacy plans in place so that the work can continue with the organisations who are engaged with the campaign driving it on? So there is a plan that, you know, the key elements of the work will continue, but through others when Step Up to Serve closes. So I think that's always been part of the plan was that though we haven't achieved everything. And and for me, the thing I'm most disappointed that we haven't achieved and that we'd aimed for at the beginning was closing the socioeconomic gap. So, Young people from poorer backgrounds are less likely to participate than those from more affluent backgrounds. And there were points where we saw that closing. But actually, in the last couple of years, we've not, we've not seen it continue to close for all sorts of reasons. So that for me is the, the piece of work I really hope that people continue to drive. Because as I've said, all of these challenges around COVID are hitting those from the poorer backgrounds more than those from the more affluent backgrounds. So they need the opportunities more than ever.
0: Yes, so as you say, sadly, those gaps have actually been exacerbated right now in this current they context.
1: Have. Yeah, they really have. It's, yeah, it's heartbreaking to see.
0: So the I Will ambassadors obviously fit within this collective. The I Will campaign, is that a separate sort of work stream or separate pillar? And what has that achieved? And what are the learnings around the campaign?
1: So we were set up as step up to serve as an organisation, but what we wanted to do was always have the the name of the campaign separate from us as an organisation with a view that the the, the i will campaign and the use of the i will brand and things could always live on after step up to serve closed down so the aspiration absolutely is is after we as an organization close down we can hand over the i will campaign that comes with there's the i will fund there's the i will ambassadors that can continue you know and live on through others after the organization step up to serve closes down so i guess it's just the name for the, for the campaign overall. And it was always a useful sort of hashtag to be able to use because anyone could use it. You know, I will, whether you're a young person or a, an organisation or a business or a school, you can sort of pledge to say what you will do to enable more youth social action. So, yeah, the idea has always been that the I will campaign and the use of that language can continue after Step Up to Serve closes down.
0: So talking about... The Youth Investment Fund and this 500 million pot of money that you got from government and well done on securing that. That's an amazingly significant amount of funds. Tell us, where is this being spent and what is the money seeking to achieve?
1: So I guess there's two different areas of funding. So we've secured initially the I Will Fund, which is a kind of a big fund that's got investment from the government and the lottery. And that's then been matched by about 28 different match funders. So that has already been investing for a number of years now and will continue to invest for another few years and, and, and possibly beyond that in opportunities for young people. And then what we also have done, we set we had a, a group called the, the Scale and Reach Group originally, which was chaired by one of our trustees, Matt Hyde, who's the chief executive of the Scale. And that has um, turned into, over time, the Back Youth Alliance. So this is a group of organisations who we've brought together uh, since the beginning of the campaign, who are the leading youth organisations. And effectively, we collectively lobbied the government around the fact that there was a need for actually broader investment into young people and opportunities for young people, of which social action is a really important component. But actually, it needs investment in the broader youth sector. Um, So that's where the kind of influencing and lobbying for the Youth Investment Fund came about. So that is actually, I think, being announced pretty shortly, the the kind of what it's going to be spent on and so on. It was going to be announced pre-COVID, but um, obviously then COVID's come about and, and the shape of the fund has changed slightly. But it's going to be about kind of capital investment and broader investment into youth services um, across the country. And that's an investment over the next five years that's been committed. So they're going to, as I said, they'll be announcing, I think in kind of mid-September, exactly what the first sort of wave of that is going to look like because as I said, it got delayed a bit by COVID. But yeah, brilliant and much needed investment into into services for young people, which have had taken a bit of a battering over recent years. So really, really important time to invest in them because young people need them more than ever.
0: That's absolutely brilliant to hear. I was on a webinar recently held by Pro Bono Economics featuring Danny Kruger, MP. As you probably know, Danny Kruger was asked by the government to conduct a review of civil society and to submit policy recommendations on how to put civil society at the heart of the government's leveling up agenda. Now on this webinar, he didn't go into the details of his proposals, but he outlined his thinking on some of the key principles behind his recommendations. And one of the things he emphasized was that we really need to be harnessing the skills and talents of young people so that they can feed into a framework for national policymaking. And I can see Charlotte by your nodding that this yeah. obviously comes as no surprise to you, given your background in this area. I'm curious to know what are your views on how the government can make that happen effectively and what might some of the challenges be along the way?
1: Danny Kruger, actually, when he was a special advisor to Matt um, in, the, in DCMS, was a really excellent ally of the campaign. And we've worked really closely with him. So he's yeah he's been a, a great supporter in, about the kind of opportunities there could be for young people. Absolutely, we need to find a way that young people can feed into policy development. I think the government has tried and made steps towards this. So there are certain government departments that have started doing this really well. Um, DEFRA, for example, has now... Really engaged a, a, poly, a group of young people around policy development around climate change, really successfully. DCMS has got a group of young people who it consults around kind of policy, so they are starting to, but it's in no way consistent or as engaged across across all the different sorts of policy formation than it could be. There's, so there's a huge amount more, and I know that um, the the Children's Commissioner has been trying to champion this as well. There's a huge amount more that needs to be done, even to the point through COVID nineteen where young people haven't haven't actually even been able to ask questions when we had the question time because you couldn't ask if you were under 18. So there's just lots of barriers, I think, for young people to be able to engage with or access politics. But also, yeah, lots, lots more that we need to do to make sure those young people can be feeding in because they've got amazing ideas. You know, it would not only help engage them with politics, but it would also help politics because it would be getting ideas from this brilliant, you know, innovative, fantastic group of people in our communities.
0: I know, and I think the same actually applies for charities as well and charities that are looking to really meaningfully engage with young people. What advice would you give to charity leaders that are looking to embark on this and engage young people? How might they do that and what might that look like?
1: First of all, I would just say do it because it is the most brilliant and engaging bit of my day. So at Step Up to Serve, We always, from the beginning, had at least kind of three or four young people on our board alongside, you know, some other much more experienced people. But it meant that at least a kind of a third of our board were young people. And actually, it's increased over time because some of the young people have stayed on and we've brought other young people on and they have been absolutely brilliant. They are energised and engaged. They ask great questions. They mean that the other members of the board behave differently. But then also throughout the rest of our work, having young volunteers, whether it's young volunteers, young fundraisers, you name it, you know, young people can engage in different ways in charities. Engage throughout the work is just so energising and they will bring dynamism and enthusiasm and also a great resource to your organisation that you just wouldn't have otherwise. They could have great digital skills. They have all sorts of things that people can't you know don't always have and they often also have time if you can be flexible about when they can fit it in around their other commitments you can get an amazing amount um, from young people once they find something they're passionate about and they get engaged so yeah it's just um yeah one of my favorite parts of my job is is engaging with young people and getting to yeah feel the feel their energy and enthusiasm for things so it's great and it's also a great investment in the future of civil society. If we can get young people becoming trustees and volunteers as as young people, that's when they form habits. And so they will then be volunteers and fundraisers and trustees and all those other things for the rest of their lives. So it's a great investment in our society more broadly, but in civil society, if we can get them engaged at a young age.
0: Yes, I think... There are so many opportunities for young people to help us think through what the so-called new normal should be. And in the context of the crisis and the pandemic, what positives would you take from this whole experience and what do you hope changes for the better? Do you mean for young people or generally? Well, both, I suppose, for young people and more generally and wider for society. So as you say, there is an opportunity for us all, if we all
1: choose to take it, to use this as a bit of a moment to take a step back and think about what is the world we want to live in. And that in that is a great opportunity for everyone, whether you're young or old, to reset. And I guess you can do that resetting on, in a really small way within your own life and your own family. But there's also a really big opportunity for us as a society to do some resetting. So whether it's, you know, changes to environmental things, because actually we're not all commuting as much or not all getting in our cars as much or yeah changes to our work life balance if we're able to be home a bit more and not be in the office all the time or so on i mean there's there's all sorts of opportunities i guess for people to do a bit of a reset and i think it's also given a lot of people a chance to step back and reflect on what's important to them so we just had a week in wales last week and it was it felt like the best holiday we've ever had because it's been such a strange year and we haven't been able to do so many things. Suddenly, s- suddenly, s- small things are incredibly precious. And so, I'd like to think that we'd all keep hold of that somehow. Keep hold of this idea that actually we can in- we can appreciate simple things in life. Though so I have to confess, you know, I I very much try and be a glass half full kind of person most of the time. I am not a creature created for lockdown. I was absolutely itching to get out back to work after maternity leave and to get out into the office and to see people and to be out in amongst people and have random interactions. And so I find being um, yeah locked in my bedroom upstairs, uh, you know, looking at a screen all day is definitely not my um, yeah definitely not my ideal way of working at all but in the grand scheme of things I definitely can't complain because we're healthy and employed and all of those things that um, you know not everybody can take for granted it's hard sometimes to find the silver linings when it's definitely not not how most of us would want to be living I don't think. Talking about silver linings
0: what has been the best thing about being the CEO of Step Up to Serve and what really inspires you about the organisation? oh god just the fact that
1: young people are this amazing incredible resource that we have in this country and and around the world in fact who could be doing so much more to help us tackle the massive issues that we're facing as a society and if there's anything any of us can do to help unlock that potential that's the thing i guess that really motivates me if you know, we will be all the richer for it. Obviously, there's a great benefit to young people about getting involved. But actually, there is a huge societal benefit for all of us. So it's a win win. It's an absolutely no brainer for me. And the more we can get young people involved in things, actually, the better the world will be for everyone. So and as I said earlier, they're just amazing fun. And yeah, they keep me young and they keep me energized and i've just had the privilege i think for the last few jobs i've done to work really closely with young people and yeah it's just been amazing so that's that's always what keeps me motivated and also that i've got to work with amazing people both in the team and on the board but also all of the partners that we worked with and 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 so on it's been it's been an incredible journey and yeah there's some people like Rania and Sophie in the organisation who have been there right from the beginning with me, um, who will be there right to the end, who I've just, I've loved working with. So it's been, it's been a great journey. And yeah, we're not quite, not quite over yet. I'm looking forward to getting back into Step Up to Serve before the end so we can close it down properly together.
0: And that's it for part one of my conversation with Charlotte Hill, founding CEO of Step Up to Serve. To hear us talk about having babies whilst being chief execs, the perceived barriers to leadership for women and discuss issues surrounding maternity and parental leave, tune in to part two, which will be available to download in two weeks' time. Meanwhile, if you enjoyed the show, please click the subscribe button on your podcast app and consider leaving us a five-star review. It will only take a few seconds and reviews really help make a difference to increase the visibility of the podcast and help spread the word. Visit the charityceo.com website for full show details and and to submit questions for future guests. Thank you for listening.